0: The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers.
1: Welcome to Science for the People. Today we'll be talking about disease and death with two guests that are very good at finding the beauty in things we usually think of as being very gruesome. I'll be back to speak with Caitlin Doty of Ask a Mortician about her work in the crematory and funeral industry, as we discuss her new book, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, and other lessons from the crematory. But first, Desiree Schell is taking a decidedly different look at disease and the art of medical illustration.
2: This is Science for the People, and I'm Desiree Schell. My guest today is Richard Barnett, a writer, teacher, and broadcaster on the cultural history of science and medicine. His first book, Medical London, City of Diseases, City of Cures, came out in 2008 and was a book of the week on BBC Radio 4. He's taught the history of science, medicine, and evolutionary theory at the Universities of Cambridge and London, and in 2011 received one of the first Welcome Trust Engagement Fellowships. He received the 2006 Promise Prize for Poetry and was shortlisted for the 2013 Poetry Business Prize. Sea houses, his first collection of poetry, and will be published by Valley Press in spring of 2015. He's here now to talk about his book, The Sick Rose, Disease and the Art of Medical Illustration. Welcome, Richard.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: Now, this book, uh, while it is definitely about medical history, is also very much an art book. Uh, the images are I believe on the book jacket, they were called gruesomely beautiful. And I don't even think that phrase does them justice.
0: Uh, (laughs) Where did you find these images? Well, all of these images come from the Welcome Library in London the library has probably the world's greatest collection of historical medical images right from uh, ancient Egyptian papyri right up to sort of collections of present day fmri scams so all of these and many more are part of a big digitization project that the library has been pursuing over the last 10 years the sick rose is in fact the first in what we hope is going to be a short series of books celebrating and drawing out different aspects of this collection and if your listeners want to browse all of the images in the book and many tens of thousands besides they just need to google welcome images all the images are there online to be seen. Well, tell us a bit about the pictures.
2: What what do they depict?
0: Well, there, our remit for the book was to look at late 18th to late 19th century medical illustration. So there are no photographs in this book. They're all lithographs, they're all drawings, they're all engravings of different kinds. So immediately, there's a fascinating kind of interaction between doctors, anatomists, and artists and illustrators, on the other hand. The images you're seeing in this book are, as it were, filtered through several pairs of eyes. Getting more specific, what these images show are diseased, dead, dissected human bodies. So this is the human body when it goes wrong. There are powerful images of suffering. There are remarkable images of things we only see when the human body goes very, very wrong that we only see in extreme states of, of of disease or death. So many of the images in this book are disturbing. But as you say, there's a, there's a certain kind of beauty to these images as well. I think for my part, they illustrate what I've been calling the anatomical sublime rather nicely.
2: Well, and, and many of the images are so much more than medical illustrations. They, as you said, they They are, they show suffering. They invoke emotion and especially the images that document the progression of a disease in one person. Mm. Uh, There's one that shows a man suffering from yellow fever and. Yes, that's, that's
0: particularly, um, isn't it? Yes.
2: The worse his symptoms get, the, the more depressed he looks. Oh, yeah,
0: you, you, you can, you can see the, the, if you like, the bleakness of death setting. in, absolutely. And one of the things I tried to do with this book was to read it a little against the grain and to think about this as a collection of portraits. These are representations of people in states that are not normally shown in the history of Western art. It's really only in the last perhaps 50 or 60 years that artists like Francis Bacon have, have become interested in this kind of material as a source for thinking about the extremes of human suffering, both physical and emotional. But throughout most of the history of Western art, you don't see representations of these states of extreme suffering. Perhaps the only place you see it is in Catholic iconography with the depictions of, of martyrs. So one thing these images represent is a, almost a kind of secular vanitas. It's a way to think about death and the end of life and the the dissolution of of individuality and and, and meaning and consciousness in the the end that we all must face. So who are these people, these people in (laughs) the illustrations? That's a really good question, because in the vast majority of cases, we simply don't know. I suspect for most of the people illustrated in this book these images are the only trace they will have left in the historical record. We don't know names. We very occasionally know things like age, but only when it's relevant to the case history. The usual way in which these images were printed in books was that you'd have the image occupying most of the page, and then you'd have a little bit of letterpress at the bottom setting out, if you like, a case history. So you might know things like age. You might know a little bit about background, if if the doctor writing it thought it was relevant to the case. But yeah, for the most part, we simply don't know who these people are. And to me, that makes it all the more fascinating, all the more mysterious, all the more moving to start reconstructing the stories behind these people, what they must have gone through to get to this point. And of course, where they went after this as well. Did our man with yellow fever survive? I think the answer is pretty clearly no, given the state of the illustrations. But looking at many of the other images, there's a wonderful set of guashes um, made by a a Western-trained Chinese artist in, in, in China. And I think they have a remarkable quality of dignity. They depict people with very large benign tumors, people who very often lived with these tumors, perhaps for years or even decades. And the quality of dignity, the quality of directness that these images possess gives them a sense of individuality, even when we don't know names, even when we don't know details.
2: Well, is it probably fairly likely, though, that they were of uh, lower class standing?
0: Yes, I think that's probably true. And I think that points us towards one of the bigger stories that these images illustrate. The reason we went for the period that we did from the late 18th to the late 19th century is that this covers the most remarkable revolution in the history of Western medicine. It's really the period in which medicine becomes scientific, it becomes surgical, it becomes focused on the details of the human body in new kinds of ways. And the place where all this happens is the hospital up until about the time of the French Revolution, most Western hospitals were really charitable institutions for the pastoral care, almost, of the of the sick poor. Now, what happens in the French Revolution is that hospitals become these great citadels, almost factories of scientific medicine and scientific surgery. But the status of the hospital doesn't really change. There's still places where really the poorest in society still go. It's only towards the end of the 19th century, that hospitals start to acquire their modern status as the places you really want to go to have heart surgery or brain surgery or or, or any kind of scientific treatment. So given most of these images would be made from hospital patients, you're absolutely right. It's almost certain that that, that most of them would have been towards the poorer end of, of life.
2: Well, and how much do we know about the artists?
0: A little more, strangely enough, than we do about the patients. We still don't know a huge amount. One of the terms I found myself returning to when I was writing this book is a phrase coined by the sociologist of science, Stephen Shapin. I'd highly recommend his work to anybody who wants to think about science and society, science and politics. Shapin, in his studies of early modern natural philosophy, came up with this phrase of invisible collaborators or invisible technicians, the people almost behind the scenes who go who take part in the making of scientific knowledge, but then don't uh, somehow effaced from the final product. So laboratory technicians would be a really good example of this. And artists like the people who made the images in the sick rows are another really good example. Most of these images would have appeared in books and on the front of, you know, the title page of this book would have been the name of the anatomist, even though the anatomist would probably not have made any of these drawings. He'd have, I, I use the, the, the male, um, Pronoun advisedly here, we are talking about almost entirely, um, male surgeons and anatomists in this period. He would have made the dissections. He would have supervised the making of the images, but you'd have had many other people involved. You'd have had, you'd have had draftsmen doing an initial, you know, pencil drawing, pencil sketch. You'd have had engravers, colorists, printers, publishers. Most fascinatingly of all, I think, of course, you then have readers. And what we really don't know is how people responded to these images. You know, they were in medical textbooks. You could go into a bookshop and buy them. But we know very little about how they were then used. And if you want perhaps the greatest example that there is of invisible collaboration, think about the dead bodies used to make these dissections. Think about the unidentified hearts and livers and, you know, even sort of stranger bits and pieces of the human body. All of this knowledge, all of this revolution in, in, in medicine that's going on in the 19th century is is built on the dead, and very often on the body-snatched dead as well.
2: Well, one of the, the images that you sort of drew for us in the book is the idea of the, the medical textbook propped up against the cadavers. So someone could <laughs> do a dissection. I love that.
0: Yeah, they, these are very practical tools. And that's another big change that goes on in the 19th century. You certainly have beautiful detailed anatomical atlases being produced in the 18th century. One of the most famous anatomical works in Western history, William Hunter's Anatomy of the Human Gravid Uterus, comes out in the, in the, I think, 1770s. What happens in the nineteenth century, there's this expansion, this revolution going on in in medicine, an expansion in medical schools. There's a new market for kind of mass-produced anatomical textbooks. So you think about something like Hunter's Anatomy of the Human Gravid Uterus, it's really expensive. It's produced in a very large format for a few hundred subscribers. Okay, the professors of surgery will probably have a copy, but it'll sit in their library and you know they might get an app to look at it, but they won't really do much more than that. These mass market textbooks being produced in the 19th century are tools. Students take them into the dissecting room. They get blood on them. They get cerebrospinal fluid on them. They, you know, these, are, these are bits of kit, very practical bits of kit, almost like a, like a field map for the human body. If you're you know, wandering over this remarkable complex terrain, you have this neat little field guide that tells you what you're looking at and what, what you can expect.
2: Well, I, might they have also used it to diagnose illness? Because you mentioned earlier that um, many people were involved in this process and many sets of eyes, so that would reduce the accuracy of those images, wouldn't it?
0: Well, accuracy is an interesting term here. And of course, it depends what you mean by accuracy. Any image reproduced in an anatomical textbook is the result of human intervention. It's the result of choices being made. And I want to use a a slightly unfortunate jargon word like epistemology. Is that all right? Yes. Yes. Okay, epistemology, theory of knowledge. You can see different epistemologies being represented as the technologies of image making change. I mean, think of the, the biggest change in visual epistemology, which is the photographs coming in in the 1850s, 1860s. Now, to our modern art, his photographs look more objective, they look more neutral. But... If you look at the first generation of people using photographs in the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, they're thinking about things like spirit photography, trick photography. They're looking at photographs which give almost equal emphasis to everything in the field of view. Now, if you want to make a useful anatomical textbook, you, as you know, if you want to make a useful map of anything, you can't just show everything that's in the landscape. You have to pick out certain features. You have to focus on certain features, emphasize certain features. So, in this sense, drawings, lithographs, human, handmade images can actually be more useful as teaching tools than than seemingly more objective images um, like photographs. It's very telling that one result of photographs coming in is a great change in anatomical. Another great change in anatomical textbooks, embodied exemplified by Gray's Anatomy. If you look in Gray's Anatomy, this this famous anatomical text that's gone through you know dozens of editions. The drawings in that are very simple. They look like engineering blueprints. They're very straightforward, simple line drawings. They're not coloured. They're not sort of elegant. They're not artistic productions. So the strange thing that photography does is actually to kind of simplify and bring out the power of the, these handmade images.
2: But don't illustrations sort of guide the user in, in what they see on the table yeah. or what they're oh, yes, able absolutely. to yeah. see?
0: That's exactly what I'm saying here. The, the, the eye has to be guided. Um, you know, the, the, the purpose of these textbooks is, 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 not to produce a sort of, you know, neutral, um, uninflected, objective view of the human body. You know, any, anyone who's ever done dissection knows that if you open up a human body, it's a mess. It's chaos, uh, when you first, when you first come to it. Um, you know, very few humans have textbook human anatomy. So there are lots of different kinds of variations. It's messy. It's smelly. There are all kinds of things militating against you taking a sort of neutral objective view of it. So yeah, these, these textbooks are absolutely intended to, to guide the eye and of course cruci- crucially guide the hand as well. You know, these were, these were very often used, um, at least in part to, to, to make good doctors and good surgeons. There's a certain kind of, ethical imperative built into these images and the way that they're used as well.
2: This is Science for the People, and I'm talking to Richard Barnett about his book, The Sick Rose, Disease and the Art of Medical Illustration. And we'll be back with more after this.
0: Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. This is
2: Science for the People, and I'm here with Richard Barnett. And we're talking about his book, The Sick Rose, Disease and the Art of Medical Illustration. Now, one of the things that I loved about your book is that you discuss how historical, social and economic factors affected the types of medical illustrations that were produced.
0: Mm. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, well, That's an in- absolutely enormous subject. Yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a cultural historian by background. So, so what interests me is the interactions between new kinds of knowledge, new views of the body and wider transformations in, in you know, power and understanding and, and structures within society. I think the, the, perhaps the, the the best way to get a hook onto this is to think again about those great invisible collaborators, the dead. Um, there's a huge demand from the middle of the 18th century as anatomy starts to, starts to become a, a sort of distinct field in its own right. There's a huge demand for bodies for dissection. And for a long time in the West, from medieval times, the standard source of bodies for dissection has been the gallows, executed criminals. There's a, a wonderfully macabre set of correspondence between two city-states in Germany in the fourth, I think, in the 14th century, where one of them has convicted a witch and she's about to be burned at the stake. And the other city-state writes to, writes to them and says, well, we haven't dissected a woman in a long time. Would you mind hanging her? And then sending us the body so that we can dissect her. The point here being that dissection was an exercise of state power over the bodies of malefactors. So being dissected was massively stigmatizing, not just in this kind of legal sort of way, but also think this is, this is very largely a, a, a Catholic and certainly a Christian culture that we're dealing with here. It's a culture that believes in the idea of the resurrection of dead, of the dead. You know, when Gabriel blows his horn on the last day, you're supposed to rise from your grave, physically resurrected. And if you've been torn to pieces by a bunch of surgeons and, you know, thrown into the Thames and washed out to sea, you're going to have a hard job putting your, your, your body back together. So dissection is, is a kind of punishment. It's a kind of post-mortem exercise of state and religious power over the, over the bodies of the dead. Now, that changes in Britain in the early 19th century, partly through a series of body-snatching scandals. I don't know whether you've come across Burke and Hare, the two very famous Edinburgh um, body snatchers. Actually, not so prolific in, ter- in body-snatching terms. There's a, there's a London gang um, led by two chaps called Bishop and Williams, who who certainly body-snatched some hundreds of bodies and may have um, murdered quite a few to order as well. So there's a, there's a growing scandal over body snatching. And in the early 1830s, the law is changed so that instead of the major source of bodies being the gallows, the major source of bodies becomes people who die in workhouses. Now, the historian Ruth Richardson conducted a path breaking study of this in the, in the mid 80s called Death Dissection of the Destitute. And as Richardson pointed out, what this legislation does is to take something that had been a, a, a feared and hated punishment for things like murder and turn it into a feared and hated punishment for poverty. And you can see right through the rest of the century, um, the poor, they start to, there's, there's a massive growth of things like burial societies. So that, so that you're essentially paying somebody if you die in a workhouse to come and claim your body and make sure it gets a decent burial. So there are all sorts of ways in which power and knowledge, the social status of medicine versus the social status of the people it's dealing with are changing in this period.
2: Well, and there's even a a sort of a class-based perspective on the specific
0: diseases as well. Oh, yes, massively, massively. Various diseases, then as now, carry various kinds of, of moral and social construction. Perhaps a good example of this would be something like gout, in the 18th century, gout was, as, as as historians have called it, a patrician malady. If you got gout, it sort of showed that you'd arrived in some ways. It was a disease of the wealthy. It was a disease of people who could eat and drink to excess, people who perhaps didn't need to exercise very much um, indeed. And one of the interesting things in the 19th century, and with, with, with new kinds of bourgeois Christian propriety, gout is reframed as a disease of the lazy, as a disease of the indulgent. So again, you can see how the moral weighting of diseases changes over time. And of course, that's that's something we still engage with today. I think, I think it's it's very wrong to assume that under scientific medicine, disease becomes something that's kind of morally, ethically, socially neutral in that sort of way. I think you see just as much moral and social freighting of disease today, just in very different ways.
2: Well, speaking about the, the morality or immorality, uh, you can see that in the art as well. I I have to bring up the entire section you have on sexually transmitted infections. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. The, I, I, you know, I mean, all the art in these books is incredible, but those images are not exactly something you want to leave open on the breakfast table.
0: No, indeed, and there's 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 a kind of power being exercised there as well. I mean, we we can talk about social power, we can talk about moral power. There's also various kinds of of of, of, of gender power being exercised here, and those images, especially of the female reproductive organs, do seem to me to be, to, to use a somewhat lit term, penetrative there 's a certain sort of violation that's that 's going on there that of course you see in all these these kinds of images. Um, one historian of this subject has written about the uh, the wish not to be represented that that we so often can sort of read into these images and try and um, try and understand so yeah the, the things like sexually transmitted diseases are a a remarkable example of how social power, collective ideas of morality are visited on the individuals through scientific medicine.
2: And it's actually interesting. Um, I don't think we we stated before, it's not just the images of the diseases themselves that you've included in the book. There's, there's also the propaganda around the different diseases that you've included.
0: Yes, there are some marvellous, I think, um, I think French and German, and a couple of British posters, essentially warning about sexually transmitted diseases. And it's very interesting that these diseases are almost always personified, and they are personified as young, beautiful women. So as has been the case through so much of history, the burden of responsibility for sexual sin, sexual disease, sexual transgression is placed on women. It's women sort of teasing and tantalizing and seducing otherwise upright, forgive the pun, men that seem to be responsible for this. There's very clear sexual and gender-based imagery. There's also religious imagery as well. It's, it's remarkable the number of takes on the serpent and the no doubt sexualized serpent and Eve and the the, the temptation in the Garden of Eden that becomes a metaphor for the transmission of sexual diseases too.
2: And one thing uh, that you do include in the book that we haven't really discussed is you do include a lot of actual medical history. Uh, So when we're talking about syphilis, uh, at the height of the syphilis epidemic, how how many people had it? Because there was a lot of propaganda, but it was for a good reason.
0: It's a very difficult demographic question to answer. We don't have good numbers and, and people have made wildly different estimates. I think a figure that comes to mind that somebody has estimated is about one in 10 of everybody in Europe. It has been proposed. Um, Perhaps more important than the the, the real epidemic, if you like, is the kind of cultural epidemic of syphilis. It becomes an expression of new concerns, especially in the late 19th century, about degeneration. This is sort of a a slightly post-Darwinian idea that as well as evolution leading us in a progressive direction, it might lead us in a degenerate direction and that sexually transmitted diseases might be the agency or even a symptom of this degeneration. So there's massive cultural concern. There's also an idea that that historians have have put forward over the last couple of generations that untreated syphilis, if you contracted syphilis in the mid-19th century, there were no real specific treatments for it, so it would progress to the the most horrendous um, tertiary stages. Untreated syphilis leads to very damaging and very profound neurological symptoms. And it has been suggested that this epidemic of syphilis was also responsible for the epidemic of asylum incarceration that goes on. There's never been an age more concerned with incarcerating the mad and the deviant than mid-19th century Britain. And it's been suggested that a lot of those incarcerated were actually suffering the, 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 the neurodegenerative effects of tertiary syphilis.
2: So, when did those, those incidences start decreasing? Do we know? I'm thinking right around maybe the discovery of germ theory. I don't know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, this, is a, this probably deserves an entire program in its own right. Early historians of medicine made the not unreasonable assumption that the great decline in infectious diseases in the West was down to the advances of scientific medicine, especially germ theory. However, if you plot a sort of a, a rather neat graph of, you know, the instance of, let's say, tuberculosis or something like that, it starts to decline well before germ theory and certainly well before any kind of effective intervention. I mean, it's, it's not really until, you know, late 1940s that you have effective antibiotics, um, things like penicillin, streptomycin and diseases like tuberculosis are declining well before that. Of course, diseases like cholera come and go in the mid-19th century, really before any conception, or at least any widely accepted conception of germ theory. So Thomas McCown, uh, uh, a sociologist, proposed that what's actually responsible for the great decline in infectious diseases, or at least what's what's largely responsible, is better nutrition, better sanitation, um, basically improvements in in living conditions, uh, rather than these particular... Um Sort of triumphs of scientific medicine, if you like,
2: well, did germ theory, or I guess more importantly uh, the invention of the microscope uh how what kind of effect did that have on medical illustration
0: well the the kind of illustrations that we're looking at in this book are really macroscopic. So you certainly get a new genre of medical illustration. Certainly you get textbooks of microscopy appearing really for the first time in the, the middle of the 19th century. A couple of caveats to this. Firstly, Western natural philosophers, scientists have been using microscopes for some hundreds of years by this point. I'm sure you know it's it's the the, 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 the Dutch lens grinder, Anthony von Leeuwenhoek, who produces the, really the first viable microscopes in, I think, the middle of the 17th century. And when people start looking down those microscopes, they discover this whole microscopic world of life. So in a sense, although germ theory in the narrow scientific sense is is an invention of the 19th century, up to this point, there's already a lot of kind of knowledge and speculation about the world beyond the resolution power of our eyes. People are thinking about the possibility of worlds of life that we that surround us that we just can't see. The second thing to say, and this this comes back almost to a kind of question of, of epistemology, Let's say you look down a microscope. You're the very first person in human history to look down a microscope. How do you know what you're seeing? How do you start separating out what might be artifacts of refraction from things that are really there, as it were? And even when you look at the things that are really there down the microscope, how do you know what they are? How do you start distinguishing different species of germs, for example? How do you agree with another microscopist, maybe 400 miles away in Germany, who's using a different kind of microscope and different kinds of stains, and is maybe working with a slightly different variation of germ theory? How do you build a community of reliable observers? That's really the question that faces the the, the, the first generation of, of germ theorists and, 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 and doctors using microscopes. It's not an immediate... Um, uh, how can one put this? It doesn't immediately open everyone's eyes. What it does firstly is to make everyone very, very confused. And a great deal of social effort, great, a great deal, of, effort, um, a great deal of, of sort of training and writing and getting together and talking goes into making the microscope into a reliable tool of science.
2: So, of course, my question has to be, why don't we see these kinds of, of disturbingly <laughs> beautiful medical illustrations now?
0: I think a number of answers to that. Uh, firstly, and, and, and perhaps most gruesomely, many of the diseases represented in these images are they've they've got to a very very late stage. So we don't see people suffering from the the, the worst, or at least we don't, in the West, thank heavens, um, see people suffering from the worst stages of leprosy or the worst stages of something like syphilis. Let's say there's also the question of what these images are meant to do. As I say, there's the the, the, the there, are, there are sort of Changes or even rather kind of Kuhnian revolutions in, in, in epistemology, visual epistemology. And, and if you open a medical textbook today, you see drawings that have much, you see images that have much more in common with Grey's anatomy. They're right. simplified. They're, if you like, reduced to almost schematic diagrams of the human, uh, of the human body. Partly, I think this is down to the influence of photography, that photography pr- provides a very rich and a very, um, A very quick way, if you like, to get detailed images of the human body. You know, if you, these days, if you wanted to sort of take a picture of somebody who comes into your clinic suffering from an unusual disease, you don't call an engraver and a lithographer and a printer. You whip out your iPhone and take a snap of it. So photography, I think, is a, is a major, photography, I think, is a, has had a major impact on the way that we represent, um, the human body. So
2: one more question. Um, and this is not about your book. Mm-hmm. Um, you do uh, a guided walk that I would love you to talk about because anybody who is living in the area should absolutely go to this because I cannot. <laughs>
0: Well, I do many guided walks. This is really how I got into doing public engagement work, getting on for a decade ago. Now, I've, I've over, the, over the past ten years, I've written I think about fifteen guided walks, mostly in association with Welcome Collection in London, around different aspects of life and death in London. So, the one that I'm doing most at the moment is. Um, it's called Sensational Bodies and it's all about London's golden age of anatomy. So we visit the Royal College of Surgeons and we see the site of executions in Newgate and St. Bartholomew's Hospital and all sorts of things. But I've also got walks that go around Greenwich that look at the history of global medicine, how the British Empire, trade and exchange influenced health and disease. I got another one that follows Dr. John Snow through Soho in the mid-19th century and examines his work on cholera and trying to sort of disentangle the various factors that might have been behind cholera. So i I'm always glad to do Guided Walks. If anybody's interested, please do drop me an email. And and if you have a large enough group, I'm sure we can set something up.
2: Richard, you are fascinating. And uh, your book is... Not in a clinical sense. (laughs) No, we would love to have you back anytime. And your book is brilliant. And I very much encourage people to go pick it up. Thanks for being here. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. And that was Richard Barnett on his book, The Sick Rose, Disease and the Art of Medical Illustration. Check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca for all the assorted links. And next up, we have Caitlin Doughty, who you may know from her YouTube series, Ask a Mortician. Stay tuned.
0: Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. I'm here with Caitlin Doty, a licensed mortician and funeral director in Los Angeles. She's the creator and host of the extremely informative and often hilarious Ask a Mortician video series and creator of The Order of the Good Death. A contributor to Jezebel, Caitlin has been featured on National Public Radio, BBC, Forbes, The Huffington Post, Vice, LA Times, Bust Magazine, Salon, and many others. Her first book, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes and Other Lessons from the Crematory, has just come out. Caitlin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. This book is one part taboo-challenging, one part hilarious, and one part deeply personal. Why did you decide you wanted to write it? I mean, it's not a topic a lot of people would consider writing about or reading about, for that matter.
3: I'm going to put that as a blurb on the back of the book. <laughs> well, my people will call your people. Go for it. <laughs> um, uh, well, I decided to write it because, for I guess for all those reasons, because I knew that people didn't know a lot about what goes on behind the scenes in, in a mortuary. And I've come to believe over the seven years that I worked in a mortuary that it's not the best thing for us to be so distant from death, for us to have so little understanding of what goes on.
1: So maybe you start by telling us a little bit about the modern funeral industry, a little bit about how it works, how it's set up, and how it differs from maybe what it used to be. Yeah,
3: I mean, I could riff for hours on that, but I'll try and do I'll try and do a short, short version for your viewers um, or listeners, I guess. Um, what What happened is that we used to take care of the bodies basically ourselves as a family. Um, they were in the home, we washed and shrouded them, kept them in the parlor, and then at a certain point there was was a change in both the dying and the dead in the sense that the medical system uh, became more prominent and took the dying out of the home. And then the funeral industry became more prominent and took the dead body out of the home. So we had two sets of professionals, quote unquote, who would do all of the dirty work for the family. And many smaller things happened in that time. But where we are today is that we have very little contact with, with the dead body at all. And um, again, I'm not sure that that's, that's the best way to go, even though it seems at, at first glance that, you know, yay medicine and yay professionals to, to do everything for us. Um, there's something very human about taking care of the dead that we're missing.
1: So before we had funeral homes and this service, and I use some air quotes for that provided to us, i um, So that we didn't have to interact with uh, the dead bodies. What did we, how did we do, how did we deal with them ourselves?
3: Well, I mean, the, the dead body is pretty simple, actually. Once it would die, you would you would take it and someone down the road would, or, or someone in your family would make the casket for you out of some wood. And you would have the body in the living room and you would wash it and lay it out somehow. And that's what the parlor was, was for, basically, was for dead bodies. And people would come over and pay their respects. And it was actually a very simple, pretty easy process. I mean, grieving wasn't an easy process, but the actual taking care of the body. It was a pretty easy process.
1: So when when did we start hiding death away? And maybe the most important question is, why did we start doing that?
3: There's a lot of different factors, but I, I think it all started in America in the Civil War not only was the Civil War huge death toll, really devastating, um, you know, more more deaths certainly than America had ever seen as a, as a young country, but we also started embalming at that time because the soldiers were coming down from the north to the south, and then the families wanted them back, but the train after, you know, they were decomposing on the battlefield, the train conductors were like, no, 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 we're not going to have that on our train, get them off, um, and most families couldn't afford the really heavy metal vaults that the 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 bodies would need to be put in to be put on the train. So they would have them embalmed. And these embalmers, which were sort of a relatively new position, would follow battles around like ambulance chasers and would, on the battlefield, put chemicals into the bodies to preserve them. And after the Civil War they had been making good money during the Civil War and they were like, Hey, wait a minute, we have to make sure that this continues on past the Civil War and so they started going from place to place selling the chemicals that they used to embalm. And they were thought of as, as quacks really. But over time more and more people did it and they it became a service that they could provide to present the corpse to the family. So to put chemicals in it, to um to put makeup on it, to put it in the casket and And present this tableau to the family.
1: So it seems like, and I've only ever seen one dead body, and it was very heavily embalmed. So uh, I I sort of was reading your book and feeling a little bit of the distance that you were talking about. So could you give us a bit of a contrast versus what a sort of standardly presented body looks like versus what a real dead body looks like? And I I don't even know the terms or the words to use.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I would say real dead body versus embalmed dead body. A real dead body, things start to shift pretty quickly on dead bodies. It it goes cool and things start to start to sink and settle. You'll notice that the eyes sink in, you'll notice that the mouth sinks and droops. Sometimes the mouth falls open after death and the eyes come open a little bit. And it looks the person looks pretty dead. What we would and you, know, you know, I know dead is a broad concept, but pretty much what we would think of when we think of a um a very dead body. And that's something that I don't know that we should be hiding so much uh, but we do with embalming and what embalming is is a, is a chemical preservation technique using formaldehyde and other alcohols and chemicals and it goes into the bloodstream blood comes out chemicals go in and what you what happens is that the proteins are fixed there's dyes in the chemicals so the skin gets pinker it plumps up you can fill spaces in the face with more fillers um fillers um, and then there are special Makeups that you put over the embalmed skin, which is very hard. So it really, you know, if somebody was really sick in their life, this just plumps them right back up. And the narrative is like, oh, if mother had cancer, it's amazing because now she looks healthy again. She doesn't look like she died of cancer. And yes, maybe that's true, but it's a really, it's a really false picture. And we've done something fairly bizarre to her corpse to make, to give that illusion.
1: Okay. Can you walk us through the process of embalming, maybe? Maybe give us a sort of cliff notes, step-by-step. Sure. Um, so when you have an
3: embalming, it's a, it's a pretty – the places that you do it, you have a big white table that the body goes on to. And first thing that you do is you open um, an artery in a vein. So mostly it happens right on the right at the top of the chest, um, you know, at the corner of your shoulder. You open the jugular vein to drain out the blood, and then you put this big chemical cocktail into the into the artery there. And as the um, as the chemicals are going in, the blood is is slowly coming out and going down the table, and that just goes straight into the drain into the public sewer system. And you massage the limb in order to get the chemicals dispersed through the body. And then at a certain point, you take an instrument called the trocar, which is a really long skinny metal, I call it a lightsaber looking object and you puncture near the belly button and it's, it's basically a stab, 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 stab inside and it punctures the all the internal organs and you suck the fluid out of there because you don't want that fluid in there either to decompose. And then you reverse the process and it pumps chemicals back into the body cavity. And so the idea being that, that all the fluids in the body, for the most part, are replaced with chemicals, which are going to fix the proteins and not decay as quickly.
1: Okay, so there's definitely a preservation part of embalming. Um, and is that why we predominantly do it these days, is to preserve the body for longer?
3: Well, the, the reason, I mean, there's a couple different reasons to the embalmer narrative. The reason that they do it is to quote unquote to I guess to present the body and to preserve the body and to sanitize the body to protect the public health is is what they teach you in mortuary school. Um, but I would take issue with the protect the public health part because, as we know, people took care of the body in their home for. Many, 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 many years before it became an issue with public health. So, uh, with the idea of preserving the body, it does preserve the body for a longer time. So, if you want to take the body out around town and take it to different, different churches, sort and different of weekend with homes. Bernies, yeah, weekend at Bernies, um, you know, corpses big adventure. <laughs> If you want to do that, uh, you it helps to have it embalmed because there are biological changes that happen and fairly quickly. Um, but if the body is just going to be stationary and you're just going to have a viewing and you have refrigeration available, it's not really necessary for the cost to embalm it. But people are sue the funeral industry so often. Um, for the corpse not looking like it's supposed to, or the corpse not smelling like it's supposed to, um, that the funeral industry likes the control that comes with embalming the body.
1: It really shows how distant we've become from death around us. We really don't encounter it, which is also fascinating given that we used to all the time.
3: Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, it was a relatively quick... Well, in a way, though, it makes me happy that it took so it was so easy to change and that means that cultural memory is very very short and that there's still chance from you know from now on to to change it moving forward
1: okay so Obviously, the question in all of this is, are dead bodies dangerous? Because it seems like the message we get from the funeral industry and even some of the regulations that exist in our cities, towns, states indicate that there's a public health risk here. So can you help us sort through what is actually a concern and what isn't?
3: Right. Um, so when you, when you're talking about dead bodies, I wish that my, my statement could be completely emphatically, never ever has a dead body ever been dangerous to the living. Um, but there, there are small examples where that's not true. And the, you know, so I'll say that and someone will say, um, what about a corpse that has Ebola? It's like, well, and there's very rare cases where a body has a wildly infectious disease like Ebola, like, you know, crooksville disease, which is mad cow disease for humans, or the avian bird flu, where it wouldn't be a good idea to handle the dead body. Um, But those would be bodies that wouldn't be dying at home anyway, or the family wouldn't be handling at home in America anyway. Um, But any other cause of death, cancer, heart disease, accident, creates a very safe corpse in the sense that even if somebody had a disease while they were dying, they're more infectious while they're dying than when they're dead because a dead person is not sneezing or pooping or causing any of the things that would usually transmit disease in that way and a lot of diseases that are in the body die With within several hours after death, some things can live longer, including HIV. But HIV doesn't become more virulent after you die. So if you're used to handling a body, nothing there is going to change. And then the big one is there's a fear of decomposition of the dead body. But the bacteria that cause decomposition are not the same bacteria that cause disease. So that's not... I mean, decomposition is offensive to us, but that's not actually a source of of contagion or fear. So for the most part, anybody that would be in in the home and be with the family is a very very safe friendly corpse.
1: I like the idea of a friendly corpse. It's a friendly corpse.
3: It's so not doing anything, it's your it's your loved one, it's your mom, it's your it's your partner.
1: It's really interesting that once someone dies they really become the corpse becomes a, a scary thing for us these days rather than a thing that we can help, I don't know, grieve with. I'm not even sure. Again, I'm I'm lacking the terms. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree so when you're talking about having someone within your home who has died what kind of timeline do we realistically have maybe not before things get unsanitary but before things get let's say unpleasant what's how long can a, a corpse be safely in a home from that perspective
3: well a corpse could be yeah exactly a corpse could be safely in the home there there are tribes that keep them in their in their long long huts and everything for for the whole time until they're skeletonized to bone um, but as far as what we would consider savory. Um, what, if you use dry ice and you keep the body, you know, putting it on some slabs with dry ice, and by dry ice, I mean the packs of dry ice, not, you know, golf club dry ice with it, <laughs> or, you know, with it moving up and Morticia Adams, etc. cetera. Um, although, you know, if that's what you're into for your loved one, that can have a nice, fun, spooky vibe for their funeral. Um, but for the most part, just packs of dry ice that you would get at a supermarket. If you put the body on that, it really slows down decomposition quite significantly, the same way that putting, when we take them into the funeral home, we put them under refrigeration. And, uh, so if you put it on the dry ice, really, I mean, people recommend anywhere from 24 to 48 hours. So, you know, t- two days I-, I think is ideal, but it can definitely go longer than that if you're very vigilant about um, replacing, the, uh, replacing the dry ice. And then in some cultures, they, they keep the body for a week in-, in India sometimes, for example. So it's possible to go for a long time, but I have just found with people's comfort level and with how long it takes them to feel, quote unquote, done or, or like they've moved through something with the body, usually about a day and a half, two days.
1: So are there any regulations? I guess there's probably a million regulations. That's kind of a silly question. But can you talk us through some of the regulations that exist that might make people that might affect the way people decide to handle dead bodies within their home? Yeah, there's um, in the United
3: States, there are about nine states where the funeral director needs to be involved in some way, and a good place to find that information is the Funeral Consumers Alliance website. It's just um, funerals, you know, Google Funeral Consumers Alliance, and you will find them. And uh, my state, California, is not one of those states. Very fortunately for me. So, uh, in states where it's not you know illegal to take care of the dead body yourself entirely there's really no restrictions you you can the family can absolutely be in charge of the dead body you can file the death certificate yourself you can have the body in your home yourself the only thing you can't do is cremate the body yourself or bury the body yourself so you need to you would need to arrange with a, a cemetery or a crematory but you wouldn't have to go through a funeral home to do that
1: I'm, I'm would be fascinated if you would tell us a little bit more about the cremation process as well, since that definitely seems to be growing in popularity. Uh, it seems like more and more people are choosing cremation these days.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, a cremation machine is actually a pretty big industrial machine, and it uses natural gas to, to function and it has a brick-lined chamber, most of them, and you turn it on and it gets up to about 1500 degrees before you put in your first dead body. And when you do that, the door opens, you slide the body in, you adjust airflow and temperature and all the things on the machine and then it goes to work. A flame shoots down from the ceiling, it hit the upper part of the chest first, which is the thickest part of the body, and uh, the first thing that burns away are the skin and the clothes, and that's actually relatively quick, and then the the real, the tissues go to work and everything through the course of the hour and a half two hours that the cremation takes uh, everything I guess organic in the body burns away and what you're left with at the end is a pile of inorganic bone fragments And they're not um, what we think of as ashes, just fluffy white ashes on the floor of the machine. What they are, are are chunks of bone that are incredibly brittle. And then you sweep those out of the machine. You take them over to a machine called the cremulator, which I know is a ridiculous name. I didn't come up with it. And you blend them, essentially. It's a bone blender. And you put the bones in the machine. It whirs around. And then after about 20 seconds, you're left with what we know as ashes.
1: So in your book, you tell a hilarious and somewhat horrific story about getting a new floor in your crematory furnace. And while I won't ask you to ruin the story for the people who read your book, I would like you to explain the related information of the golden rule of crematory and who is first in line when you get in in the morning and why that is.
3: So over the course of the day, because it's a brick-lined chamber, it retains heat and gets hotter and hotter throughout the day. So the golden rule of cremation is that anybody who is larger, and by that I mean a really substantial, tall, um, anything from a really substantial tall man to a somebody who is is obese in some way, clinically obese, um, will will go in at the beginning of the day because if there's a lot of fat on a person, it can go up very quickly in the heat, almost like a grease fire. And there have been crematories where grease fires have been started because the fat burns up too quickly. So you want to put them in at the beginning of the day where it's not as hot it will be towards the end of the day to control the process a little more. And then toward the end of the day, you do much smaller 100-year-old women or children as the case was in my crematory where we did cremate more children because we had a contract to do so with local hospitals. Um, so yeah, it's a golden rule of cremation is that bigger people have to go in at the beginning of the day.
1: And larger people tend to decompose faster as well, right?
3: Yes. Yeah. I, I guess back to the science behind that from my understanding is that bacteria really enjoy fat as a as a food source so they they go after that very quickly and thus the decomposition builds up quicker
1: ah. so when you have a loved one cremated are you able to go in and participate in the cremation process at all or is it kind of a handoff to somebody in a lab coat and off it goes
3: well it's usually a handoff to somebody but and unfortunately they're not in a lab coat they're in you know whatever street workloads they're in, because it's a pretty industrial environment for the most part. Um, but it's not a handoff. It doesn't have to be. You can certainly uh, do what's called a witness cremation, which I actually really encourage people to do. And when you hear witness cremation, you think that you have to watch the body being burned, and that's not true at all. What a witness cremation is, is that you go in the back where the cremation machine is and watch the door open, watch your loved one's body be loaded in to the machine so you can see it happen. You can see that they're going in and that they're the only one going in, then the door closes, and usually they'll allow you to push the button to start the machine going. And it's just a really nice, you can light a candle or chant or listen to Led Zeppelin or whatever you'd like to do. And uh, it it gives a sense of of a ritual and that you're sending them off.
1: So I'm curious, what are some of the most surprising questions people have asked you? And feel free to draw both from your video series and your average workday.
3: Um. Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, mostly, I mean, there's nothing that surprising in a in a sense. I guess maybe they were surprising at the time, but they have become less so over the years when you start to hear them more than once. Um, but in in the workday, I think it was more people who had just really uh, erroneous perceptions about what went on behind the scenes. Like, oh, do you keep you know when you come in to the mortuary, do we just keep you on meat hooks? Like, do we hang you up, or you know, do you cut the tendons so you don't? Sit it up during cremation? Or do you burn everybody at once together? No, 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 none of those things. Um, and then when I got more into the Ask Mortician series, it's much broader, you know, can I have a Viking funeral? Can I keep a skull on the mantelpiece? Can I taxidermy my mom? Um, so oh. it's, it's a lot of just possibility questions.
1: Someone asked you if they could taxidermy their mom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was the answer? I've had a
3: guy who asked me um, who said that he He didn't want to leave any inheritance to his children unless he could write into his will that they had to taxidermy him, um, which was interesting. And, And my response to him was, well, you're probably going to have a hard time finding someone to do it. And also, from my understanding, what makes taxidermy work so well is the fur or the feathers of an animal because they they keep really well and they hide the imperfections of the skin. Whereas if you're just making a human skin mold, it's not going to go as well and it's going to look real keep creepy
1: really quickly. So uh, what options are there actually when you die? I mean, obviously, this is something after reading your book that I'm thinking about, even though I'm not necessarily pegged to die anytime soon, but I am now thinking about it. Um, Which is good. And, and I'm curious, what, what generally are the options other than sort of the standard two, cremation and funeral burial?
3: Well, those I mean, those are kind of the, the big two, as they have been for a very long time in human history. And for most, most states, the death certificate gives you three options. You can be buried, you can be cremated, or you can have scientific donation, which means that you give your body to a medical school or to a private research facility for medical research. And uh, burial can mean either traditional burial, quote-unquote, which is actually the body in the ground with a big vaults and a big casket, or it can be natural burial, which is a body just opened a hole in the ground, put the shrouded body in only about four feet deep and let it decompose very quickly. And for now, those are really the three main options that you have.
1: I remember watching one of your videos and you mentioned that one of the options that is available occasionally is that you can be liquefied.
3: Yeah, that's a new thing. And it's becoming, I think, you know, my, my prediction says that it's going to become more popular. Um, it started in for use in, in medical schools. It was in the Mayo Clinic. It's at UCLA. And it's only now starting to be used in funeral homes for for regular people. And uh, what it is, it's a process that combines really high heat water with lye, the base lye. And it's almost like a flash decomposition of the body. And what you end up with is something fairly similar in consistency to cremated remains. And why it's going to be popular popular, I think, is not only is it much greener than cremation, as we know, it doesn't use the natural gas, doesn't release mercury, but it's also doesn't have the association of flame, which some people are still really uncomfortable with. And so the idea of a water cremation makes them feel feel much better somehow. So I wouldn't be surprised if it actually gained quite a bit in popularity as machines continue to be installed and states continue to start to make exceptions to allow people to be disposed of in that manner.
1: So I want to talk to you a little bit about the Order of the Good Death, because you are a licensed mortician, you are a funeral director, you are actively a part of the current um, funeral industry. And yet you are probably one of its most um, outspoken critics in a lot of situations right now. So can you talk me through a little bit about what your experience in the funeral service has taught you and why uh, you created the Order of the Good Death and a little bit about some of your concerns about the industry?
3: Yeah, I created the Order of the Good Death about uh, more than three years ago at this point, and the idea behind it is to bring together death professionals of of all stripes, and uh, as well as academics and public thinkers and artists who are trying to create a more public conversation about death and dying, uh, especially in Western culture. And the idea behind it is that there are these people doing these really interesting projects, but people pay attention a lot more when we're together and when we're a group and when we're a movement. And there are a lot of issues with not only how the funeral industry runs, but with how death and dying in general in the medical system and and in the public consciousness run right now. Um, So it's important for people to know that there are groups of people who are trying to address it.
1: It does seem one of the messages in your book is to not wait to decide how you want your death to be handled, or perhaps how you want the death of a loved one to be handled until the moment that it happens. Uh, it seems like that's, in fact, one of the worst times to make a lot of these decisions. And yet it's the time that almost all of us wait to make them.
3: Yes, yeah, exactly. It's, it's not You're not going to be in a good place when your husband dies. You're not going to be in a clear thinking place. And it, that's why people get taken advantage of by funeral directors, and why they end up paying more. Than they should because they don't they're not firm in what he would have wanted or what they would want for him, and I also just think that while you're alive some of the fear of death can definitely be alleviated if you are thinking about which disposal option makes you most comfortable. And maybe none of them will make you totally comfortable at first, but if you hate the idea of the cold ground and something about the toasty cremation machine feels better to you, or if you want to decompose naturally and leave no trace and want to have a natural burial, which is what I want and that makes me feel really comfortable and if I think about it, I know I won't be around when I'm dead, but It still makes me comfortable to to think that that's what is going to happen to my body and knowing that my family knows that.
1: Caitlin, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. If you want to learn more about The Order of the Good Death or Caitlin's new book, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes and Other Lessons from the Crematory, you can start by checking out the website orderofthegooddeath.com. A link we'll have up on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. And of course, if you're having a poke around the internet, we would love for you to poke us on Facebook, on Twitter, or on Google+. You can also find us on iTunes, where you can subscribe to the show and listen to any of our past episodes. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week on Science for the People.
2: Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Schell.